This is the Get Healthy 360 podcast, where we discuss topics related to your physical, mental, psychological, and spiritual health. Your host is Dr. Chris Ferguson, board certified in anesthesiology and pain management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you should consult your primary healthcare provider before making any decisions related to your health. And here's your host, Dr. Chris Ferguson. Oh, one more thing before we start. If you like this episode, please consider rating us five stars. We would really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Today we have Aaron Lapointe. Aaron is a fourth degree Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. He also has a black belt in judo. He competes regularly and has his entire competing career. As his full-time job, he's a clinical psychologist. And Aaron also has an interesting challenge with jujitsu and these combat sports. Now, these combat sports are naturally very anxiety provoking. You're, you're fighting someone else and he doesn't have the use of his right arm, correct? That's correct. So, Aaron, do you want to give a little bit of background as to how that happened? And then really this podcast is not about Aaron's specific injury because everyone has something about them that they're insecure about or legitimately prevents them from functioning in the way just it causes problems in them competing in something. But I think this is a way to discuss how, what the mindset you need to get overcome that and talking offline, I think we would both be in agreement that your mindset makes a huge difference. And also Aaron of note was trained by the famous Carlson Gracie senior. So Aaron, thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. When it comes to my injury, when I was seven years old, I was riding in the back of my father's pickup truck. I grew up in uh, Waterbury, Vermont, and it was common when I was young, common for a lot of kids, to ride in the back of a, of a truck. And uh, one day, unfortunately, when the truck was moving, I ended up falling out. And as a result of that, I severed a brachial plexus in my right arm. I was also knocked unconscious for a couple days, and um, I developed uh, temporal lobe epilepsy. Fortunately, my seizures eventually went away, and I haven't had a seizure in, in close to 30 years. But ever since uh, I tore my brachial plexus, I haven't had uh, any mobility or feeling in my right arm. So I am a full paralysis of my right arm after that accident. And I was right-handed, so injuring my right arm, I, I had to learn to use my left arm. And I'm fortunate, I think, that it happened at such a young age because I was able to make that adjustment. And now I've seen parents, very well-meaning parents, really coddle their children. I can think of several examples where they have a two or three-year-old child, and then every time the child cries, one of the parents would rush over, pick up the child, and coddle them. And then the child is crying every 10 minutes over nothing because it's reinforced by their parents that they need to be coddled. What were your parents' reaction to this injury? I mean, once you've got better, how did they respond to you? Yeah. I would say probably most of the coddling came from my grandparents. Definitely my parents were concerned, and I'm sure if you asked my older brother, he would say that they did coddle me to an extent. Um, looking back, and, uh, and keep in mind this is uh, over uh, 35 years ago, I don't remember uh, being overly coddled. Of course, if something happened, my parents would be concerned. They'd want to make sure that I was okay. How old were you when you started the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu? 
I didn't start jujitsu until, let me see, I was 22 years old. I had done some martial arts before then. I did uh, taekwondo for a couple years and then kempo karate for about five years before I started jujitsu. So jujitsu, for those who aren't aware, it's, so Aaron, correct me if I'm wrong, it really became famous with Hoist Gracie in the first Ultimate Fighting Championship where he was relatively a very small and statured, not very muscular, and he went on to beat guys that were significantly larger and huger than he is. Mm-hmm. And in looking at jujitsu competitions, it's, I think, the only sport where boys and girls, because, like, hormones haven't kicked in and yet, kicked it and whatnot but girls can legitimately be boys in competition if they have good training but as an adult you have a huge disadvantage and you were training with carlson gracie senior so just again to put it in context for people who don't know who carlson gracie senior is in the world of jiu-jitsu do you want to give some background on that Sure. Carlson Gracie Sr., he was the oldest son of uh, Carlos Gracie. Many people consider it to be the originator of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Carlson was uh, not only a great Jiu-Jitsu practitioner, but uh, he was a phenomenal coach. He's produced some of the best BJJ champions of all time. And for those people who don't know, BJJ stands for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Carlson, just an incredible coach, very, very kind, warm-hearted person. And um, we were fortunate that um, he ended up moving to Chicago because that's where his son, Carlson Gracie Jr., had a school, and that's the school that I was training at. And um, Carlson Gracie Sr. moved out to Chicago in 2002, and um, he lived there um, until, unfortunately, 2006, when that's when he passed away. But for uh, in terms of jiu-jitsu history, yeah, just a legend, arguably one of the best of all time, not what? only as a competitor himself, but as a coach. What was his approach when he was working with students, whether they be like fresh, brand-new white belts or world champions? The thing that was amazing about Carlson is uh, he made you feel important. So it could be your very first day you walk into the school and uh, there could be a five-time world champion in the room with you. And Carlson makes you feel just as important. He definitely went out of his way to make people enjoy jujitsu and to believe in themselves. And that's why so many people were drawn to him because uh, he made you feel like you were important. And uh, like I said, he may have just met you for the very, very first time. Yeah, he just had that charm about him and a very, very big heart. And how would he go about making someone feel important? Is there anything you can think, like specific things that he did? Just by, uh, for one, acknowledging the person. And if sometimes we go in somewhere we're new and we're surrounded by a lot of people that have so much more experience than us, that are in, in the jiu-jitsu world are a lot more important than us, per se. But with Carlson, he didn't see it that way. So just by acknowledging you, by talking with you, his English was poor. But still, just his mannerisms, his body language, and also just the attention that he would give you. You never felt like you were less than anyone else in the room. So his school was not a school where he was pampering students and giving away belts. So Correct. for those are, the, who are not familiar with Brazilian jiu-jitsu, how long does it take to get to black belt in, say, specifically from Carlson? It's hard for me to say for sure because Carlson has over a hundred black belts 
And um, some of his black belts have been training for, I want to say, 60, 70 years. Generally speaking, it'd be very, very difficult to receive a black belt in less than five years. And I know some people where it took maybe up to 20. So it kind of depends on the person, depends on a lot of things. But generally speaking, it does take a while to get your black belt, especially from Carlson. Like I said, I'm not aware of how long it took a lot of his students. So, but his school was not a school where you'd show up, you'd kind of spar lightly in class, and then you go home. Like, his school was a competition school, meaning it was at that competitive atmosphere where when people were sparring with each other, it's aggressive sparring. Mm-hmm. So, as an adult, in jujitsu, for those who aren't aware, you're using chokes and joint locks, and sometimes your joints get broken, sometimes your bones get broken, etc. Sometimes someone chokes you and you pass out. That would be very anxiety-provoking for for many people, you're in this atmosphere with the use of only one arm and two legs. So you're at a large disadvantage because people have two arms and two legs. Yeah. How did he help you or how did you deal on your own with that anxiety or stress? Yeah, well, it wasn't just from Carlson. Before I moved to Chicago, when I started training at Carlson Gracie Junior School, before then I trained with a uh, one of Carlson's black belts who just so happened to live in Vermont, where I'm from. His name is uh, Julio Fernandez. And uh, Julio moved out to Stowe, Vermont, I want to say in the 80s, maybe the late 80s. And uh, he started teaching jiu-jitsu. In fact, he was probably one of the first BJJ teachers on the East Coast. He was teaching uh early 90s, maybe even late 80s in the U.S. at a time when there wasn't a lot of uh, jiu-jitsu schools here. And I remember my very first day when I walked into the school that Julio was teaching at, I wasn't sure if this was something that I could do. I walked in and I saw some people sparring, rolling around, even though I did love to wrestle when I was younger. Uh, I was never part of a wrestling team, but I always used to play wrestle with my friends. But when I saw what they were doing in the jiu-jitsu class, I wasn't sure 100% if it's something that I'd be able to do. And when I asked Mr. Fernandez that, he immediately, without hesitation, told me that I definitely could learn jiu-jitsu and get good at it. And I trained with Julio for two years. So wait, so for anyone who's never done jiu-jitsu, the first, I would say, six months or so is probably really miserable. Like people are just beating you every single time. People who are smaller than you, people are weak, they're just beating you. How did you get through that first six months? Yeah, I took some beatings. did. And um... But what made you keep coming back, whereas a lot of people would have just quit? It was just so much fun. It was fun. And uh, think about jujitsu. You see yourself progress. You see progression. And progression can happen pretty quickly. And sometimes progression can just be that now you can last one minute against somebody instead of 30 seconds. So uh, just seeing yourself getting better and uh, also just the, the physicality, the fun, the camaraderie. You know, that's a big part of jujitsu. There's a lot of camaraderie. And Mr. Fernandez, like Carlson, you know, made you very confident in yourself. So he helped kind of instill that confidence. And, and how did he do and that? Like anything similar to with Carlson, just uh, he wasn't someone that would degrade you. I remember the very first tournament I went to, and I lost my match, my first match. And Julia, he was proud of me, making you feel like uh, they believe in you. Let's zoom in on that. So you trade, you train hard. You show up to your first tournament, you lose, 
anyone who's going to compete and lose is not going to feel particularly good about it. How did he react to you after you lost? From what I recall, Julio told me I did a very good job. He was proud of me and uh, gave me some tips, some things that I could do differently. And then it was just keep training, get better. Jiu-Jitsu is like anything else. If you want to get good at it, you have to practice. And I'm just making emphasizing that point because I think everyone's aware of that parent who has kids in whatever sport. And if their kid doesn't do well, they'll just come down on them. Yeah. Like really, really hard, which if you want to comment on that from a psychological standpoint, because you're a clinical psychologist, what that does. Yeah, without a doubt, that can be very, very damaging, right, to a child's ego, a child's uh, psyche. Maybe it would push someone to work harder, but uh, it's at the risk of being afraid to fail. You're worried that if you don't succeed, someone's going to be upset at you. I never got that in jujitsu. Not with... Uh, Julio, not with Carlson Gracie Jr., not with Carlson Gracie Sr. I never really felt that they were disappointed in me if I didn't win my match. And you were making a what I thought was a very good point offline when we were chatting, is that if they felt that you showed up to class and you worked really hard and you really tried your best, the outcome was secondary. You were winning in their eyes. Yeah, definitely. Sometimes with jiu-jitsu, if you just have the courage to step on the mat, that's a victory in itself. There are a lot of people that choose not to train, that choose not to compete, because there's fear of failure. There's a lot of different ways that you can succeed, that you can be victorious, that doesn't require you winning a match. So as a psychologist, do you have any suggestions or insights that you'd recommend for parents who want to raise their children to be confident and sure of themselves. I think that one of the most important things is uh, you want your child to understand that it's okay to fail. And actually, I don't even know if we should use the word fail. It's okay to not win. And why do you make that distinction? The word fail has a negative connotation. And uh, just because we didn't win doesn't mean that's a, a negative outcome, not a negative consequence. In fact, a lot of jujitsu people will tell you that they improve so much more when they lose a match as opposed to when when they win. Because sometimes when you win, you're happy, you think you did really, really good. You're not as likely to go back and kind of problem solve and figure out how to get even better. Sometimes the best learning experiences come from our losses. So I think it's so important that a child is taught that it's you don't always have to win. The words always, never are very, very dangerous. You think about it, there are very few things in life that are always or never, right? Similar to a have to, have to thinking, someone that is constantly telling themselves, I have to do this. That can be very dangerous because if you've made up in your mind that you have to achieve something, what happens when you don't achieve that? You're going to be devastated. So I think it's important that uh, parents help instill confidence in their children. Uh, Of course, they want their children to succeed. They want their children to win. Every successful professional athlete has a drive to win, right? Winning's not easy. So there does have to be that drive, and it may require that there's some external motivation, but we have to be careful that it doesn't become counterproductive, where it's a double-edged sword, where when the child does not win, that it's a huge blow to their ego, their self-confidence. I haven't heard anyone else quite say it that way before when you talked about saying you have to. So there's some people are dyslexic and they will not be able to read. 
and they can go on and be phenomenally successful in other fields. So to say that someone has to be able to read at a certain grade point level if they just it's not in their makeup to do that. I think that's a, a super interesting point. Any other insights into things like that? Well, another thing that I think it's very important for parents to be mindful of, especially when you're dealing with young children, is that children tend to internalize things. A child that is constantly being told that they didn't do well enough, they should have done better, the child's going to internalize that and they're going to potentially develop this kind of self-image where they're not good enough. So words can be very powerful especially with young children, because children can unfortunately be led to believe anything about themselves, even if it's not true. So then how do you go about, because the counterpoint is, is if you tell their child that they're great and magical, that they don't develop that sense of having to work hard because they are great and magical. And there's a whole movement about trophy should not be giving out just for showing up. What are your thoughts on that? That's an excellent point. That's kind of on the other end of the spectrum, you know, where telling the child you're the best, you're great, you have no flaws. That's not good either because that's not real. So I think there needs to be kind of a balance. I think praise and positive reinforcement is ultimately is the way to go. But uh, you can even take that too far. And then in terms of the trophies, I think it's important for children to understand that, uh, unfortunately, we can't always get that gold trophy. There are going to be times where, for whatever reason, we're going to have to settle for second, third, fourth, a hundredth place. I think that's very, very valuable because someone who's able to accept not always winning, I think in the long run, is going to be mentally very strong. As a child, so there are children that will go into jujitsu or other very physical sports, and that's aggressive physical contact. But on the flip side, then there's the topic of adults banking their kids. And those two, on the surface, seem to be at odds of each other. What are your thoughts on that? Compared to the physical sports and the spanking? Yes. Well, I think the big difference is that um, with the spanking, the message that the parent is conveying is you did something I didn't like. So there's nothing really positive about that message. You know, where in uh, physical sports, despite the physicality, I mean, it can still be a very positive environment. Like a lot of jujitsu gyms, right? You go in there, there's people rolling around, I mean, sweating, breathing hard, but everyone's having fun. A child that's getting spanked, I, I don't see any fun there. So it sounds like and the also intent matters. The, go ahead. Yeah, 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 definitely. The intent and the environment and, and also who's delivering the message. With uh, spanking, I mean, this is, you know, caregiver, a parent. So that can take on a whole nother level of meaning. Could you elaborate on the last point, the whole new level of meaning? Yeah, because uh, the parent is just a very important part of this child's life. So when we go to the gym, then yeah, of course we have friends, there's the camaraderie, but we're still able to kind of separate ourselves. Whereas something comes from your parent, whether it's a harsh criticism, a spanking, that can be hard to swallow. So it sounds like the top, correct me if I'm wrong, the things that you're really recommending parents do to raise confident children with minimal anxiety or depressive issues is really just to be supportive, but give appropriate feedback if they're doing something wrong. 
Exactly, right. The feedback is critical. And there are going to be times where your child does something that, yeah, they probably shouldn't have done that. And you definitely need to give them feedback. Sometimes that feedback may have to be kind of harsh. So when you say harsh, like if you're giving harsh feedback, can you give an example, like a hypothetical, like what? Because harsh means, that word means a lot of different things to different people. Yes, you're right. When I think of harsh, just you know, maybe with a different tone of voice, maybe a little anger behind it. I'm not a big fan of uh, being overly critical or using mean words. But sometimes, yeah, it's definitely necessary, without a doubt, for a parent to raise their voice when they're concerned about something. And what would you say are some of, I'm sure there's a lot, but can you go through some of the things that you would recommend parents not do? In terms of uh, pushing your children to succeed, that is very, very important. It is that um, most parents are going to want their children to succeed, and that's a good thing. But like with anything in life, you have to be careful you don't take it too far. I know I've spoke to people before where because they felt like their parents pushed them so much down a particular path, they ended up hating that path. They ended up resenting their parents for that. So parents need to find a way to motivate their children but to still kind of keep it fun and for their children to want to continue down that path. And parents also have to understand if, for whatever reason, the child decides they don't want to go down that path, they want to do something else, it's important for the parent to respect that. So I would say that anxiety and depression are very prevalent, and sometimes there's an organic basis for it, but sometimes there's not. If you could create the perfect atmosphere to create a very anxious adult, what would that look like so people can avoid doing it? Yeah, the very, very anxious adult I can see as someone who's just terrified of failure. And their definition of failure may be that they're not able to live up to someone else's expectations. And it's possible that the expectations another person has placed on them is so high that it's unlikely they're going to be able to meet those expectations. So they're terrified that they're not going to make this other person happy, and more so that they're going to make the other person upset. And then if you add an extra layer, not only are they going to make the other person upset, but the other person now is going to criticize them. There's going to be name calling. It's just going to totally obliterate their self-confidence. That's a scenario I see a very, very anxious person. And it doesn't have to be just be in sports. It could be in anything where an adult who's just terrified of upsetting someone else, feeling like they have to live up to someone else's expectations. And if someone is that type of an adult, possibly because of what of the way they were raised, as a psychologist, what would you recommend they do? You mean if we're talking about the adult? Who's yeah, you have an adult who's been raised in this type of environment. They recognize yeah, okay. that their anxiety is a problem. Advice for them. Yeah, okay. One thing that uh, a lot of people with anxiety tend to do, they do what's called magnification. And that's where in their mind, they make things out to be a very, very big deal. When in the grand scheme of things, it's probably not that important. So in order to decrease our anxiety, and this applies to everyone, not just someone who has a severe anxiety disorder, but anyone, that um, it's important that we're mindful of how much emphasis we're putting on certain things, and also very important that we're able to step back and tell ourselves that this really isn't that big of a deal. Because people that make a big deal out of a lot of things 
tend to be very, very anxious. I'm going to give you a recent example, actually, you know, because uh, over the last 20 years, I have competed in a number of uh, tournaments, jiu-jitsu and judo. And uh, yeah, like a lot of people, I get kind of nervous right before my match started. Well, I competed last weekend. It was a judo tournament, and I really wasn't nervous at all. And uh, there were some tough guys in my division, so it's not that the competition was easy. But when I stepped out on the mat, I wasn't really nervous at all. And one of the main reasons, because I told myself before I went to this tournament that if I lose, it's not that big of a deal. It really isn't. In the grand scheme of things, it's just a tournament. And to circle back to when you first started, so whenever anyone is starting something for the first time, whether that's skiing or jujitsu or whatever, that learning curve is often really miserable. But your words are echoing with me where you talked about how the first six months, which for again, anyone who is not familiar with Brazilian jujitsu, it's really miserable because you just literally just get beat up a lot. But you thought it was great fun. So what was your mindset going into class or if you're going to spar with someone and you know fully well you're going to lose? How do you make that fun? It just was fun. Probably a big part of it had to do with my training partners. That can make a big difference. Over the years, there have been people that I haven't enjoyed training with. Sometimes that can kind of take the fun out of it. But if you have someone that you enjoy rolling with... But they're like... So for anyone who doesn't know... When you're sparring or rolling with someone, rolling is the jujitsu term for sparring with them, they're trying to choke you mm-hmm. or like bend your arm in a really uncomfortable way. Yeah. Now, it's interesting that you would find that fun, but other people and often new people to the sport find that utterly miserable. Yeah, and I think an important distinction that you need to make early on is that this is not a fight. It's not. We're training jujitsu. We're here to have fun. We're here to learn. So it's not a fight. And sometimes it may seem like a fight, depending on who you're training with. But it's not a fight. And if every time you're rolling with someone and you feel like it's a fight, it's probably a good idea to find a different training partner. So I think by making that distinction early on, that can take away a lot of the anxiety and add some fun, some enjoyment that we're just, we're training like any other sport to get better. And it seems like you could apply those same principles to anything that you do, really, that it's not this very stressful event. Like if, say, so you're giving a talk, it's almost like you're going out there, it's this fun thing, people are listening to you, and it's fun. I don't know, make it fun in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, definitely, yeah. And if you had to create, again, this perfect scenario of someone who's just chronically depressed, not organic depression, but some sort of something their parents did, can you comment on that? Yes. I'm a huge fan of uh, the concept of thinking errors. Mm -hmm. And um, just to kind of uh, let the audience know what I mean by that is, uh, you know, lots of times, you know, how we think is how we feel. Unfortunately, our thoughts aren't always correct, right? We have a lot of thoughts throughout the day that just aren't accurate. And sometimes it's those inaccurate thoughts that make us the most anxious and depressed. So we need to be very mindful of when our faulty thinking is contributing to our negative emotions and then start challenging those faulty thoughts. The magnification example, before we get really upset at something, asking ourselves the honest question, is this really that big of a deal? The have-to thinking, before we tell ourselves, I have to do this, well, do we really have to? Maybe we like to, 
but that's different than having to do something. Another common thinking error, this is a huge cause of anxiety, mind reading, when we're so worried about what other people think about us. For me personally, that was huge growing up. Because of my disability, I automatically assumed that whenever I walked into a room, regardless of of what we were doing, that people would think that I wasn't as capable because I could only use one arm. And how did you get over that? It took a long, long time. It did. For me personally, the physical limitations that my arm presented, I mean, that was the easy part. It really was. As humans, we're very adaptive. We can overcome, we can adjust. So I figured out how to do things with one arm. It was the mental, the emotional struggles that were so much harder to kind of overcome. And a lot of those were self-generated with me assuming that other people would think less of me. I felt like I had to impress other people. I had to. I had no choice because that was the only way that I could make them understand that I was on their level. So I put a lot of pressure on myself. And um, it was really, it's only been like in the last probably 10, 15 years. And I attribute a lot of this to my training in psychology where I came to understand how much of my self-confidence, unfortunately, for the longest time, was associated with how I thought other people thought about me. So I had to kind of change the way I thought about myself change the way I thought about other people, and be very, very mindful of the thinking errors that I would make. And you use the word mindful with a lot of intent. Can you explain what you mean by mindful? Yes, because um, we all do things, we all think certain ways, but sometimes we're not really aware what we're doing. We may behave in a certain way without fully understanding kind of what's driving that action. So one thing that I've started doing, this was, like I mentioned, probably 10, 15 years ago when I really started to do this. If I was feeling bad for whatever reason, if I started feeling sad, started feeling angry, before I let that emotion kind of just overwhelm me, I had to stop and kind of critically analyze what I was thinking about and then kind of challenge that thought if I felt like it wasn't accurate. I'm going to give you an example here. There was like a few years ago, I went to Walmart and um, one of my friends, I happened to see her. She was there. So we passed each other. We said hi. And then she kept on walking. She didn't stop and chat. So my immediate thought was, wow, she must be upset at me. I mean, what did I do that was wrong? I thought we were better friends than that. And having those thoughts, I started to feel bad. But I had to quickly kind of pause and tell myself that really, I don't know why she didn't want to talk. It could be any number of reasons, right? Maybe she wasn't feeling too good. Yeah, Maybe uh, she just got some bad news. Who knows? Maybe she had to go to the bathroom, right? So um, <laughs> so. so that's an example. I had to be kind of mindful of how my, my thinking and actually my faulty thinking, because I was making all these assumptions without having good evidence. I had to be mindful of how those thoughts were contributing to my feelings. So what process would you recommend someone go through to learn this mindfulness or learn how to self-audit their thoughts? A lot of times our thoughts are automatic. 
they kind of happen out of our conscious awareness. So we, we all have automatic thoughts. And sometimes we've been thinking about something for 10, 15 minutes before we realize we've been thinking about it. So for me personally, sometimes I use feelings or even sensations kind of as a sign. Yeah, if I start to feel sad, okay, what thought may have contributed to that feeling of sadness? Or when I say a sensation, say uh, my heart starts beating, it starts beating fast, like I'm nervous, or I start sweating. Okay, what was I just thinking about? So sometimes we need to use kind of other cues to kind of uh, tune into our thoughts. Maybe it's a behavior, right? Maybe I catch myself doing a certain behavior, and then I have to stop and say, okay, what's going on here? Do you have any examples of that? Of a certain behavior? Yeah, or, I, to clarify that point of how a behavior would give you insight into what you're thinking. Okay, say there's a situation where a person has a social phobia, where they're terrified of what other people think about them. There's a huge fear of being judged. So they're invited to a party, and they decide to go. They don't really feel comfortable going. They don't want to go, but they decide to go. They walk inside, they walk into the apartment, there are other people there, they look some of the other guests, and then they immediately turn around and leave and walk out. Okay, so the behavior is they left the party. So they leave the party. Now, what caused that behavior? Because unless we're talking about a reflex, most behaviors, they aren't automatic. There's a driving force behind them, which is often a thought or a feeling. So in that particular scenario, maybe the person stops and thinks and they're like, when I walked into that party, I assumed everyone was looking at me and people were saying, who is this loser? What's he doing here? He should just leave. That's what I was thinking. I started to feel very, very uncomfortable. And then sure enough, that influenced my behavior. I left. Now, ideally, you're able to kind of catch it before you act, but that's not always possible. Then you do the next best thing. You kind of look back and figure out what thoughts, what feelings influence this behavior. And this is what psychologists do. In my field, so I do interventional pain, and I will often recommend people see a psychologist. And often there's a little bit of unease with someone seeing a psychologist. A lot of people seem to think when I recommend they see a psychologist that I think there's something wrong with them. But in all things, if you're going to get really good at things, sometimes it's just these little small adjustments that will make huge returns in a very positive way in the outcome. And I've seen people do dramatically well and improve very quickly when they have a good psychologist help them with these small adjustments in the way they think. Any other thoughts or ideas on raising confident, well-adjusted children? I think just helping the child uh, think positively. And when I say that, I don't mean that um, they're always thinking that things are going to go their way and that if they get an F on their report card, it's okay. I don't mean that. But when I say think positively, that uh, in a way they're able to kind of think like a scientist before they come up with conclusions about things, that they kind of take a look at the evidence, they collect their own data, which can be very, very hard for a child to do. But um, real important that children learn to understand that uh, just because someone says something, just because someone thinks something, doesn't necessarily mean it's true. Sometimes you need to figure it out yourself. And I think those are very wise words that can apply to everyone every single day of their lives. 
So Aaron, I thank you very much. I want to be respectful of your time. But again, thank you for sharing all of your insights. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a comment on the Get Healthy 360 Facebook page and consider subscribing to this podcast. Thanks.